The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, quit looking for your dog on Google Earth and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 239 with guest Rob McGovern, recorded live Sunday, May 6th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now, bringing the ASP.NET Masterclass on-site to your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who just flew in from DevTeach Montreal, and boy, am I not going to do that punchline. Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, Lawrence. His jokes get funnier every time. And welcome to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. Once again, to start another week with Richard Campbell, my co-host. How are you, sir? I'm glad to be home. Montreal's a lot of fun, but home is better. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, I drove up there with my wife, and it was our anniversary on Saturday. We had a good time. It was the- indeed, and congratulations. You know what we went to see? We went to see Body Worlds too. Have you seen that? I know of it. Plasticized human bodies. Right. This uh, German guy figured out a way to take cadavers, who, by the way, have signed them their bodies over to the program after they die. It's Which all kind of tricky. How do you sign after you die? Uh, yeah, you know what I'm saying, Richard. <laughs> so, but it was interesting. You get to see these cadavers in, you know, all cleaned up and, you know, shiny uh, with no skin. Right. In various athletic and artistic poses. And uh, you get to walk around and take a look at every part of the body. They had one that was an exploded body. So they had all the parts on strings. But ah. it was all 3D, like you could, you know, everything was in the right place, but just spatially separate. So you could really see how everything fit together. And the thing was, of course, like 30 feet high. 
But uh, I don't know that you're actually selling this successfully to me. It was pretty amazing. You know, a lot of people, Gretchen said, are you sure you want to go? This is not for the Of course, she's a nurse. She's intimately familiar with this more so than most people would be. Yeah, she says not for the squeamish. And, you know, the way I look at it, hey, this is educational. It's reality. And, you know, I'd much rather go see that than, like, see, you know, 90,000 people getting murdered in some stupid crime drama on TV. You know, heads chopped off and stuff. I don't want to see that. Or a monster truck mud pit. Yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, enough about okay. that. Let's uh, move on to the show here, our post-Montreal show. I have an email from yes. Dan Meharry, who's the uh, technical manager of uh, Mid-Counties Cooperative Domains. And he says, hi, all. Thanks so much to .NET Rocks, Jay Flowers, and Scott Hanselman for your excellent video on setting up a continuous integration server with CI Factory, which we did on uh, DNR TV recently. Very awesome. He says, I've been trying to understand how to put CruiseControl.net together for a while now and getting bogged down in the Nant and MS build scripts needed to get it all running. Having followed the video, I was able to get everything running and working in a few hours. There's still a huge amount I have to discover about how it all fits together, but it's a great start. Thanks again, Dan Meharry. And you know, Richard, we've been getting more emails from people that we don't read who say they've been uh, getting together with groups of people at work once a week during lunch and watching DNR TV together. Yes, a lunch and learn. Yeah, and uh, one email, maybe we'll read it on Thursday, uh, was great. He says that he's a development manager and he's been trying to get people to follow these practices uh, for in his group for a long time, but it falls on deaf ears. And then watching Jean-Paul Boudou do all this great stuff with patterns and test-driven and all this these great technologies and techniques, like effortlessly, now there's beginning to think, hey, maybe there is something to this after all. He says, I, I could you know preach on till I'm blue in the face for the next 40 years, and it wouldn't have had any impact. That was a good email, too. Well, there you see the real strength of DNR TV. Watching, it's not just seeing the code, but watching how somebody operates studio in a different style. Right. Very, very valuable. So I've got an email, too, a little different theme. This is from Scott McKissick. Okay. I've been listening for years, and I like the direction the show has taken lately. Two shows a week seems to give you latitude to cover a greater variety of topics. Amen. In the past, you've mostly had people who knew about specific .NET APIs, which is great, but lately you've been branching out and getting people who have a perspective on software in general, such as Eric Sink and Steve McConnell. Oh, wasn't that awesome? Two of my favorite shows Both in the past of them. few months. Yeah. I enjoyed the last episode about Spec Sharp, too, but was kind of surprised because it is a pretty obscure language. Yep. It's C-sharp with extensions. A show only a language geek could love. Yeah. And, hey... That's me. (laughs) But if you're going to cover languages coming out of Microsoft Research, you should get Don Syme, the man behind F-Sharp, on the show. Huh. F-Sharp has the potential to become a first-class .NET language because in many situations, it is a better choice than C-Sharp or VB. Wow. It uses type inference, so you get the benefits of type safety without the verbosity. It has a performance similar to C-sharp or VB, and it has a lot of academic research in language design behind it. Hmm. It is based on OCaml, that's O-C-M-A-L, a language in the ML family of functional languages that is object-oriented extensions. 
Dynamic languages have been getting the attention lately, but static typing means IntelliSense. Yeah. Visual Studio integration is good, and there is a lot of good demo material on Channel 9. F-Sharp seems to be gaining momentum. Two books from F-Sharp are going to be released soon from A-Press. Kind of odd for a research language. Hmm. Generics in 2.0 are based on F-Sharp work, so please try and get Don Syme on the show. Thanks, Scott McKissick. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no kidding. Sure. I, I mean, I have a good time dipping into the Microsoft research pool. And coming up in the next week or two is another one on Polyphonic C Sharp. Right. But if folks are enjoying this, I'll keep going there because I'm fascinated by language. I am a language geek. And uh, these concepts around functional languages are stuff that really interests me. So by all means, let's dive in more. Yeah. Awesome. And if you've got some ideas about other shows and you haven't heard them so far, send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. And if you happen to be uh, attending or putting on a code camp or some other event, a free event for developers in your area, anywhere in the world, please let us know, .netrocks at franklins.net. For example, and let's uh, bring out the code camp music here, Richard. The Raleigh Code Camp is happening June 23rd, uh, and you can read about that at shrinkster.com slash 017. And on June 30th, there's a conference in Reading, UK, that's in the United Kingdom, called Developer, Developer, Developer. <laughs> and you can read more about that at shrinkster.com slash P80. And of course, our friend in New York, uh, Greg Brill at Infusion, is sucking up .NET Rocks listeners like there's no tomorrow. He's uh, hiring in New York City, and part of the deal is you get a free apartment for a year nice. in addition to a Manhattan salary. You can read about that at shrinkster.com slash KH6. All right, Richard. Well, let's introduce Rob McGovern. Rob is Director of Managed Services for Infusion Development. Hey, we know those people. Yeah. He's responsible for training, technical writing, hosting, support, and most importantly, virtual earth development. Rob's projects have included everything from biomedical data collection systems to large financial services applications. Rob is the author of several technology books covering Java, J2EE, Web Services, Oracle, SharePoint, and ASP.NET. Rob's also authored many articles on MSDN and other developer-oriented websites. Welcome, Rob McGovern. Hello. So before we get into uh, all the virtual Earth great stuff that you're doing here and the robots and everything else, um, tell us a little bit about Infusion, about what it's like to work there. And, you know, Nick Landry's over there, and Greg, of course, is a really talented guy. What's it like working there? Well, I've been with Infusion now for just about seven years, which actually makes me the, the longest full-time employee short of Greg. So Greg hired me back when Infusion was about four or five people. We had a small, tiny office in Hoboken and uh, uh, had an awful lot of fun being a small crew doing very selective projects. Over the last seven years, obviously, we've grown quite a bit. Uh, we've gone from, I think, like six or seven people when I first joined, and now we're up to about 150. And uh, no sign of stopping in terms of growth. Over my career at Infusion, I've been involved in just about everything Infusion's done, from hmm. um, architecture, consulting, training, technical writing, uh, project management, administration, just about everything that is possible to do inside the company. So I've certainly seen it all and, and have all the stories. I hold the distinction of being the um, 
the only person who's ever brought a hedgehog into the infusion offices. <laughs> hedgehog. I had a, a hedgehog when I first joined, and uh, Greg just couldn't believe that such things existed, so I brought her into work one day. Um, I also was the only one who brought, as far as I know, I actually brought robots into the office. Wait I minute, had a, wait like a wait Mindstorms kit and was playing Wait, 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 wait. Wait a minute. You said it was a pet? Yeah, it's a, a, a real-life pet hedgehog. You had a hedgehog for a pet? Yeah, a little uh, African pygmy hedgehog. Yeah, pygmy hedgehog. They're little. They're, 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 you hold them in your hand. Yeah. Okay. Is this something that you have to, you know, you can't get it at Amazon.com. You get it at your local pet store, or is this like a special thing? It's it's definitely an exotic pet, so you won't find them everywhere. And uh, depending on where you are, there's various laws about whether they're allowed to be pets or not. So where I'm living right now in Colorado, I think they're still banned as pets, so I can't have another one. Now, why is that? Are they smelly or something? No, they're just exotic, and they are not native to the U.S. No. In fact, hedgehogs are not native to North or South America. It's kind of strange. It's the only place where they aren't. Huh. Uh, I don't know. People write laws for all kinds of strange reasons. Well, anyway. And you said something uh, also about being the first guy to bring a robot into work. Yeah. I, I, before Greg got into his automation kick, I, I had brought in a uh, – Lego Mindstorm set and was playing with the Lego Mindstorms robots at my desk one day, showing him the programming interface and all the cool things he could do with it. And I, I won't say that I took credit for some of Greg's ideas, but, but that may have spurned a, at least one where he um, got the idea to automate a uh, player piano and, and hook up MP3s to it and, and all kinds of craziness. It was he, he is a, a little nuts, isn't he? He can be. <laughs> He's a great guy to work for, though. It's, like it's always, always entertaining. He's like the lovable mad genius kind of nuts. Very definitely. Yeah. Has a, a collection of pianos. Uh, yeah, it's a fairly big collection of pianos. Uh, he still plays the piano from time to time, but usually he'll sit down and do something that's, I don't know, halfway between like a PDQ Bach or a Tom Lehrer and usually made up with lyrics involving some sort of development project that you're on. Yeah, you know, he did the same thing when he came up here the first time. He sat down with my guitar and spontaneously rambled off a, a sort of like a, a tune about .NET Rocks and in the studio and just incorporating everything that had gone on that day. <laughs> well, it sounds like a fun place to work and it's always good to work with creative people. I mean, that's what it's all about as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Nobody likes to be, you know, stuck in the cube. So, no, and then we, I, we work very hard not to get stuck in cubes. Yeah. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, I think my plan was to, to talk a little bit about virtual Earth and uh, location intelligence. Well, and that's certainly what I wanted to dig into. Uh, virtual Earth is, well, I mean, there's been a, all of a sudden a bunch of products around the whole, let's see the globe, uh, the the putting together map data, like road map data and the actual contours and uh, satellite imagery together. Uh, maybe we got to sort of define exactly what we mean when we talk about virtual Earth and what Microsoft's done. Well, and before we do that, first of all, I just have a couple observations that uh, that I picked up from uh, Joe Campbell, which is who is not a developer, but he's a uh, anthropologist, dead now. But um, anyway, he uh, he basically says that the image of Earth from space is a mythic archetypal image that will that is the image of the future because you know this this is the sort of you, you don't see any borders you don't see any countries and yet everything that you know and have ever known is on that ball from space so 
it really is a sort of a archetypical thing. And, and that may have a lot to do with just the popularity in recent days. Hey, we have the technology to view the Earth from space, or at least a model of it. I'm all over that. Love being able to zoom around. And the second thing I want to say is that Richard and I also have a history with Virtual Earth going back to the road trip that we did in late 2005. Right, Richard? Oh, yeah. Where as we, we had the – it was Dr. Neil that made it all work for us. So we had GPS in the uh, RV hooked to a laptop that was calling a web service over EVDO right. to continuously write out our points. And I think it was Jason Follis that was calculating our actual speed by the distance between the points. Yeah, and that was all using beta versions of the Virtual Earth SDK and everything. It was just brandy new back then. So anyway, that's that's our experience with it. Well, a lot's definitely changed since the uh, the initial beta release, and it's you know I think Microsoft is still learning an awful lot about how to do software as a service, and and Virtual Earth is, is to a very large degree one of the flagship products along that line. Yeah, uh, giving you a little bit more of the history about Virtual Earth is that uh goes back quite a ways, actually, to a combination of the uh, Terra Server project uh, and, honestly, MapPoint and MapPoint Web Service. Uh, MapPoint CD was a, a CD-based product. It was um, really kind of oriented more at consumers and, and people who wanted to do a little bit of, of location analysis. Then there was an even more consumer version of, of Streets and Trips, kind of how do I get from here to there and, and see local maps and information on my computer. But that's all that it was, was just the local maps. So MapPoint Web Service was the uh, sort of the next leap forward about, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago of turning the mapping data into a service where Microsoft hosts the mapping data and consumers can go access it. So kind of building on the uh, the original MapQuest model, as it were, where you could, you could call in, get a map back, get driving directions, get a route, put some pushpins on the map, and so on. Uh, a lot of things happened with MapPoint Web Service, and it was you know, basically going gangbusters. They had, they had taken over a lot of market share from MapQuest. They had uh, kind of put themselves in a position with the big players that um, a lot of store locators and, and a lot of real web front ends were being built on MapPoint Web Service. And then kind of at a 90-degree angle, you had Terror Server and, and Virtual Earth come in where Microsoft started looking and thinking about, well, this is great, but the market for store locators and, and flat cartoon maps is kind of saturated. Everybody knows what they are, and they're not really doing anything new or different with them. Let's take this whole data set that we have and, and come into it, and now that computers have the, the speed and that we've got the um, the kinds of servers and the kinds of memory that we need to actually make this this work. Uh, and that's kind of the origin of virtual Earth. You mentioned Terra Server. That was um, like geographical satellite data, the the first one that I saw really, online, where you could sort of browse satellite maps and things, right? Right, and TerraServe was really a combination of uh, U.S. government or U.S. Geological Survey maps plus some uh, Russian maps that, uh, again, finally released out of the, the Cold War. Everybody, the governments have had control over the satellites. TerraServer got that information out to the public, and uh, people started really playing with it and thinking about what you can do with it. Do they still use those maps, or we have new maps now, new satellite uh, photos? One of the challenges when you're talking about any mapping platform and, and I'm kind of glad you brought that up, is how often the data gets refreshed. We're still using some Terra server data. So does Google Earth. So do some of the other mapping platforms. It really depends on which part of the world you're looking at and who's, who's fronted the money to do updates. Uh, good example of that, you know, on any given day when you look at uh, mapping data from comparing virtual Earth to Google Earth, whether your neighborhood is going to look best in one or the other is going to depend on who did the most recent update. 
And right. at this point, it's you know, there's different satellite companies, there's different uh, aerial photography companies, and it's all kind of a, a gamble as to who put who put how much money where on scanning which region. So it's, it's there's no clear cut answer as to how much data of which kind and which company we're still actually using. Okay. The whole point of uh, virtual Earth and, and Google Earth is that you as a consumer never really mm-hmm. need to care about that. You're just going to the one source, and the best that's available is is what's there. So on virtual Earth's case, in in the case of virtual Earth, excuse me, uh, Microsoft has made a, a pretty aggressive push to updating imagery as frequently as they can. Currently, they're hitting updates as you know as often as once a month, and uh, sometimes even faster than that as they bring uh, new cities online, especially with the the aerial imagery and the uh, 3D mappings and the t- the building renderings. Um, the overall imagery, it's it's again kind of a crapshoot on any given day as to, to how often things have been updated, but um, a lot of it has been replaced and it is no longer the Terra server. On the other hand, if you're looking at like the middle of Wyoming, you're probably still looking at Terra server images. Ah, okay. So it's it's who chooses to put which money where. Um, population centers are always high priority. Uh, the middle of nowhere is obviously lower priority, so it's the, the images aren't updated as frequently. So let's take the business case for virtual Earth. I mean, it's nice to fool around with, and people, you know, developers are into it for the geekiness of it. But, well, you know, if, if I'm not a developer, if I'm a business guy, what uh, what's attracting me to this as a tool? Okay. When you actually talk about the business case for virtual Earth, you're kind of looking at almost three separate groups. You definitely have one group that's the the, the cool geeky um, developer community view, uh, very much Dr. Neil's world actually. Of yeah. What kind of fun mashups can I make? Then you've got the what I call more of a, a classic retail view. So you have companies like uh, Best Western, big hotel chain. They're currently using virtual earth and their locators to not only find you know, let you find where the nearest Best Western is, but uh, they have something called a trip planner where you put in your starting destination and your ending destination, uh, pulls up a, a driving directions of the whole thing, finds all of the best westerns that are within 10 miles of your route, and then also points out points of interest along the way so that you can basically do a virtual tour as you're going along, looking at the map, seeing what, what areas you might want to stop in and where the hotels are. And, gee, you know, Meteor Crater is only about 40 miles or you know, 40 or 50 miles off the road over here. Maybe we stop early at the hotel here and, and go plan a trip over there and, and stretch out our, our drive. But you can see all of that, and you can see that with uh, virtual Earth maps. So not only do you have the um, the straight driving directions and the, the sort of the flat cartoon maps that are easier to navigate, but you've got the ver- the visual imagery. So you see that your route takes you kind of near, uh, you know, Meteor Crater, Grand Canyon, uh, one of those areas. You can actually move the map over and take a look at it and see what you might be missing if you just keep driving by. So if you're in the business of providing travel information, I suppose. Right. So retail. Is, yeah. is a big, big thing. Uh, travel information, uh, store location information, uh, nearby points of interest, uh, hotels. That whole retail sector is, is pretty heavily invested right now in taking mapping to the next level. You know, it's not just enough to know where the nearest store is, but what's in my neighborhood. Now, I'm, 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 finding, I'm having a hard time finding the business case in what you're saying. Are you saying if someone wants to put up a website that essentially does what Virtual Earth does, or are you saying, like, if I'm the Holiday Inn, I want to make sure that I get my icon on, on Virtual Earth? Well, I, okay, again, you just brought up almost two different business cases. I did, yeah. I'm trying to figure out which one you're referring to. Right, the first one is more what I'm referring to. 
Okay. I want to draw customers into my hotels or to my my services. And to do that, I want to give them a, a nice, very pretty interactive experience where they can see not only what I provide, but what else is nearby so that they can decide that, yeah, this is the best hotel for me to stay in. Talking about, again, just Best Western. Right. So I'm, uh, I happen to Harley go to the Davis Best Western and, site, and I clicked on Trip Planner, gave it two destinations, and it drew the line. It, it's a map point type uh, road map, and it drew the line between the two sites and then highlighted all of their hotels along that line. Okay. Right. And you can actually zoom in further than that with the, the virtual Earth maps and see points of interest around any one of those areas. So again, similar kind of thing, like Harley-Davidson. Harley-Davidson has a, a, a different kind of trip planner that they do just purely as a service to encourage people to get out on their motorcycles. And they have uh, what they call, um, uh, I forget the name of them, it's like great driving routes, where you go to the Harley-Davidson site and you pick on one of the great driving routes and it shows you this virtual tour using virtual earth of which roads to take, what the roads basically look like, what kind of scenery you'll see along the way, and, of course, where the nearest Harley-Davidson dealerships are when you need to stop and do whatever it is that you need to do on your Harley. Hmm. So that's, that's definitely the retail experience. Okay. The second part of the retail experience, the other business case that you talked about, has less to do with the virtual platform and more to do with local search. So if you're looking at uh, Windows Live Search and you type in some of the names, and this is a, a new service that's just beginning to be offered from the virtual team, uh, there's a number of companies where if you type in their name, you see links and it'll pop up special custom icons on the virtual earth map. So uh, if I'm remembering correctly, I think PetSmart is one. If you go look for PetSmart, you'll see the actual PetSmart logo as opposed to just the normal default push pin, and you'll see extra information about those stores. So in that case, PetSmart has delivered their, their data set of all of their locations, store hours, phone numbers, web links and everything else to Microsoft, and Microsoft has incorporated that into the search. So are you ready for the big news? Telerik is taking the wraps off four new product updates, RAD controls for ASP.NET, RAD controls for WinForms, the first official version of the Telerik reporting tool, and a brand new suite codenamed RAD controls Prometheus. And you guys think I don't sleep. Telerik's tools have always been great, but I think this time they've outdone themselves. Well, here are the details. Prometheus is built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET Ajax, and it'll become the successor of RAD controls for ASP.NET. Just as ASP.NET Ajax will be the future of ASP.NET, RAD controls Prometheus represents the future direction of all new Telerik development tools. This new suite of controls will also pave the way for seamless integration with Microsoft Silverlight, formerly WPFE. The WinForm suite aims for the stars with powerful new grid, chart, and tree view controls. For me, it seems like a major player on the WinForms market. Another intriguing addition to Telerik's portfolio this spring is Telerik Reporting. The product introduces a new level of development experience, which Telerik collectively calls easeability, a naturally intuitive mouse-only approach to generating Windows, Web, and PDF reports. And if that's not enough, go to www.telerik.com to check out what's new with Telerik's renowned RAD controls for ASP.NET. You know, it's amazing, and total tangent here, but uh, in my car... I have the nav system, and uh, it's in the Prius, Toyo Prius, and it will show McDonald's logos, Burger King logos, 
You know, if there's like a family-owned Italian restaurant, you'll see a little Italian flag. But, uh, I, you know, in that, I know that little mom-and-pa Italian restaurant didn't upload their data set, you know, so they're probably in some larger database somewhere. But I think I think that's really cool. And if you're... If you have multiple locations of your stores and you're not sort of paying attention to that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, nobody knows your store locations better than you do. And if you can't get that information out, if you're waiting on, on, you know, Microsoft Search, they also buy a big big Yellow Pages book, basically, and scan that in it. But if you're waiting for that, your store locations are going to be a year or two years behind and also not have the other information you want to push out there, like what's the web link, what's the store hours, has anything opened or closed? A uh, good example that we work with on that is uh, H&R Block. They go through a, a huge tax season from basically January 1st to, to April 15th, where they probably have four times as many locations open as they do any other time of the year. Hmm. So if you're trying to find tax services in July, you get a totally different answer than if you're trying to find tax services in February. Right. Interesting. Is there, is there a piece of the API that allows you to upload your data set? Yeah, that was actually part of the MapPoint web service, and Virtual Earth has kind of taken taken the whole MapPoint web service and rolled it in as part of the Virtual Earth platform. So you'll still hear people talk about Virtual Earth and MapPoint web service, but it's it's still part of the basic whole. Okay. The other thing is that the retail is really only, again, part of the picture. There's another huge set of business cases around Virtual Earth that are, are just really beginning to be explored. Uh, and those all fall into the, the realm of uh, location intelligence or business intelligence. So one example of, of just pure simple location intelligence is, is again, take something like an H&R Block or Edward Jones or uh, tax planning. They have a list of customers. They have a list of tax professionals. They want to map the two. Hmm. Tell me which customers are nearest which tax professionals so that I can do a couple of different things. One is I can do marketed ad- or, uh, direct advertising to the people, telling them exactly where they need to go. The second, I can analyze my... Uh, you know, my business and say, you know what, I need more stores over here because that's where my demand is and that these stores just don't get any customers. Yeah. Or that I need to change my marketing preferences and, and market more in this area because that's where my high-value customers are and I don't have any stores over there. So you see a lot more location intelligence or business intelligence uh, being performed with virtual earth kinds of platforms where you're taking extra data and overlaying it on top. Now, you see some crossovers here between the, the retail side and more of a, a back-end business side. And a good example there is real estate sites. Some of the, the classic virtual earth real estate sites will overlay a tremendous amount of information on the map so that you can see um, school districts, uh, crime statistics, uh, yeah. uh, ethnic information, um, household average household income drawn over the top of areas where you can see which houses are for sale and, and what their characteristics are. Where's all that data coming from? Uh, again, that's it, it, the answer is, as always, it, it depends. Some of that is coming <laughs> from Microsoft data source. Some of that is coming from individual companies, private data source, and some of that's coming from third parties. So anywhere that you can find the data that you can somehow map to a location, you can display that through Virtual Earth. Interesting. And when you say location, what do you mean? Like latitude, longitude coordinates? Give me latitude, longitude coordinates. Give me street information. Give me... Um, uh, zip codes, give me, you know, anything that you can somehow tie to a map. So usually it ends up being either, you know, street addresses for pinpoints right. or uh, polygons that are, are defined by latitude and longitude coordinates for, for other kinds of areas. 
So, uh, you know, again, kind of going back to the, the marketing example, there's um, uh, in the United States, there's a company that draws up the entire United States into what are called DMAs or direct market areas. And, and sometimes they're, they're a city, sometimes they're subsections of a city, sometimes they're, you know, large sections of a state. It depends on, you know, population and buying power and a, few, a whole bunch of other things. Those you can get access to basically as a set of latitude and longitude coordinates. So and I'm thinking in terms of something like a pizza parlor who only got a five-mile delivery radius sure. wants to mail out to just the five miles around their shop. Yeah, and that works too. Huh. So... That gets you part of the way. The other part of the way is, is what we're really seeing more of on uh, data visualization and uh, virtual Earth-based dashboards. So take our pizza parlor example. Let's, let's pick a big one like a Pizza Hut or something like that. Um, they can draw pinpoints for all of their stores. They can draw the radius for delivery area on all of their stores. They can overlay information on sales for the stores and see if they've got the right coverage. And, and compare that to, uh, to household incomes or, or statistics on the number of times different, you know, different people have ordered pizza from them and see that all with the map as your primary navigation metaphor. Yeah. So if I have the map and I can see the, the circles and the pushments in the center and it's color-coded to show me different pieces of information, I move my mouse over the particular store and I click on it and maybe I see another window pop-up that shows me specific store details. Very so that cool. instead of of thinking about my sales and my, my business data as rows and columns, what I'm seeing is a visual representation through a map. Now, is this something I get? I'm thinking in terms of the analysis services for SQL Server where I'm feeding all of my data in to create some business intelligence. How do I go about incorporating this sort of map-oriented data into that? Right. All you need to do... And, and this is something that we do on a regular basis is take your data from, you know, from SQL analysis and SQL reporting services, tie it to some geographic information, tie it to a store, in which you've got the store location, tie it to an area, in which case you've got a, a polygon defining the area, and display it on the map. And then you see you know, it, it makes it really, really easy for people quite often to, to think about things in terms of, of geography, in terms of location. So if I'm doing analysis on... Um, retail sales and I've got a, a clothing store, I can see on a map how overall my stores are performing and I can color code my icons or I can change my icons to, to look at different values. I can look at different areas to see temperature differences and how that affects which clothing I need to send to which part of the country. All of those things are possible using the, the map as your navigation metaphor, combining it with the power of all of the business intelligence and SQL analysis services. One uh, really good example of this is a, a product that Infusion has been building, and unfortunately, Bill Baldassi was going to join me on the call but couldn't make it. Um, we've been working on something called the, the Jeeper system or Joint Emergency Response Planning System. Huh. Uh, it should be going live in a, a city in Canada fairly soon, and uh, hopefully we'll get some good coverage on it. Basically, it's a portal uh, designed for you know, base, large event management or, or disaster management. So whether you're talking about a... Uh, uh, parades or, you know, like I live in Denver, so that, you know, Denver Grand Prix, or you're talking about managing and, and planning for a disaster. What that tool does is it's a SharePoint site where the main web part is a virtual earth map. And on the map, you can click on the map, choose from a, a wide variety of icons and say, I want to put a police position here, a police position here, 
set a command point in the middle of the square, and I want to draw off this uh, irregular shape as my uh, my security area. And then over on this this corner over here, I'm going to put my emergency services, and this corner over here is where all the porta potties are going to go. And the virtual earth map is the way that you can navigate through all of that, put all the information on the page, and then because it's in a, a SharePoint site, you have four or five other nuggets around the uh, the main map that allow you to do live communications. We integrate with um, you know Microsoft uh, Live Communication Stack. Hmm. Uh, allows you to do you know any kind of reporting services or, or communication features or analysis, and it tracks the whole thing behind the scenes, so you know exactly what happened when and who said what to who and uh, where things are and, and what's going on. So it's a it's an incredibly powerful solution. And one of the problems about podcasts is you can't do the visuals. But uh, yeah, maybe we can get Bill on. Uh, the TV version and do. We never talked about live communication server before on the show. I don't think Richard have unless we did. We didn't talk to Dare about that, did we? No, no. That, we talked about other elements of live. No, uh, right. Uh, LCS live communication server is another product that hasn't made it to our show yet. Do you, can you talk to that a little bit, Rob? I'm not an expert in live communication server, but basically what. What I would describe it as is kind of an ultimate wrap-up of all of the various ways that you can communicate. So you're talking about uh, you know, instant messenger, you're talking about paging systems, you're talking about uh, uh, SMS or, or text-based communications. In the case of the, the Jeeper system, we've actually hooked up with a third party that will translate, uh, has a, a plug-in for live communication server that will actually translate it to um, uh, radio communication devices. Right. So that in the, the central command post, you have the uh, the chief watch officer typing in, uh, everybody check in with the CWO when you get on scene, and that gets broadcast out on not just uh, IM, but on pagers, on text devices, and through the uh, the radio systems. Is there any voice over IP in there? Yeah, definitely. It includes voice over IP as well. Hmm. So it's it's pretty powerful, and like I said, I'm not an expert on it. but Sounds like a topic for a whole other show, doesn't it? Yeah. And I can imagine the power of this if you if you're thinking about disaster coordination, where you might need you've got a bunch of guys bringing in a first air first aid center, the other guys are bringing in the porta potties and so forth to be able to literally give them GPS type coordinates so they just know where to go and put their stuff down in the right place, just to save that time of trying to organize a site. Right, and then to have the guy at the center controlling it all, looking at a SharePoint site where he's got full access to. To every piece of information that's coming in filtered how he wants to see it. Yeah, it's a hugely powerful system, and uh, I'd love to get Bill on at some point to do a demo for you. Another thing that I thought of is I want to see, you know, what what my demographics look like in terms of, uh, you know, for hitting my website. So uh, you, you get a certain amount of demographic data, well, geographic location, country, if you will, from your uh, logs, you know, from IIS logs. be kind of nice to... to I don't know how I don't know how detailed those logs get, which is what I'm trying to say. But but it'd be nice to to get a world map kind of view of you know who's coming to your website and you add the real time aspect to that, and that'd really be fun to watch. There's actually a guy who's built a system very similar to that, and unfortunately I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But it was actually posted as a demonstration on the Vive Virtual Earth website a while back, and and basically what he did was. Uh, took the IP addresses, went back to the, the DNS registries to find the address, and then geocoded that address into a latitude-longitude and, and did a little bit of roll-ups and statistics on it and then displayed it out as a, a global map. It's an incredibly interesting thing to see. 
problem, of course, is that IP addresses are mapped to the address of the ISP, not of the guy using it. Right. True. But it's close. It's close. And that's actually the way that uh, Virtual Earth will auto-locate you as well. There's a, a couple of different systems depending on, on what your, you know, the way your computer is set up. But the, uh, the most approximate method is to just reverse geocode the IP address. So Virtual Earth does that automatically. Reverse geocode? That's interesting. Or like take the, take the IP address, go find out where it is in terms of a street address, and then geocode the street address. That's cool. I, and I, it suddenly occurred to me, there's really two distinctive engines here. One is something that will translate all of these different uh, uh, location-related data, like zip codes and addresses and lat longs and so forth, into a common format. And the other is that whole visualization component. Right. It's, it's very definitely true. Have you seen uh, the TR map component from ADOC, ADOC? Shrinkster.com slash OL2. So this is a, uh, a .NET mapping component, and uh, it's to help GIS developers go beyond mapping and concentrate on fleet management, routing, and dispatching. Right. Also comes with data, it says. Looks interesting. But it's kind of just amazing how this sort of little kitchen cottage industry has grown up around this kind of, uh, you know, anything that you can do with geographic data and computers, boom, you've got a business. Yeah, and I think it's, it's in a lot of ways, sort of the next generation of, uh, of data analysis or data awareness that columns and, and charts are great up to a point. And the next step beyond being able to look at a spreadsheet is to, to put it in context that everybody is sort of intimately familiar with, which is where am I? Where are my customers? Uh, if you listen to business people talk, the vast majority of things that they say are somehow tied back back to geographic information. So having that map as your front end is a very natural and intuitive way of, of thinking about your data anyway. It's just something that nobody's ever had access to because all we had were spreadsheets, and it's, it's hard to see on the spreadsheet. You know, Sure, you can do a filter and say, show me Chicago, but that leaves you with you know 10,000 rows in your, your spreadsheet. Whereas if you, you say, show me a map of Chicago, then you're seeing the distribution of all of those points and see that, well, all my business is on the west side or all my business is on the east side or yeah. you know, clustered around the lake. And it's, it's I, a very, very much kind of a, a hit, your, hit you in the face analysis as opposed to, uh, to looking at columns of, of numbers. Answers suddenly jump out at you. Uh, I remember a project like this where we showed very clearly once we had the geographical data we had a very odd customer distribution. It was scat. It seemed to be scattered across multiple suburbs in Vancouver. It turned out they were clustered around the light rail system, but you only right. saw that once you had the map date. It's just a, a hugely different visualization mechanism. So there's there's definitely some paradigm breaking that has to go on for people to to really embrace mapping technologies as something other than you know give me a store locator. You know that that retail segment is. And, and even the uh, the consumer segment, to a certain degree, are, are so saturated and understood at this point. Uh, nobody thinks twice about going to uh, going to any kind of website and expecting there to be a link that says "Show me my locations" or "Show me the locations." Right, that's normal. Yeah, this data analysis stuff is is really the the next big step, and it's it, it's a total revolution in in terms of the way that uh, the way that people are going to be looking at data. And then the things that you can do with the data. What I'm I'm really interested in and really excited by is, you know, Virtual Earth is 
is absolutely great. It's the, the bells and whistles, and it's the front-end interface. But the power of it is not as much just because it's virtual earth, but more because of what you can do with it in combination with other things. Hooking it into SharePoint, hooking it into SQL reporting services, hooking it into any data source that you have that can provide any kind of, of location-tagged information and then displaying it in different ways and, and giving you the ability to navigate on the map just by doing simple drag and drops and seeing your information world change is, is really the, uh, the the next huge area for virtual earth. There must be some really interesting sort of hobbies and fun things that you can do with this. I mean, I, it seems, you know, the business case is compelling, but just as compelling is just the fun factor that you can do with this. Like, what about geocaching? Do you do that? Yeah. Um, again, that's that's a little less my area because, um, you know, again, Infusion is a company. We we live in live and breathe in the enterprise space. Mm-hmm. So unless there's a lot of zeros at the end of the contract, it's not something that we spend a whole lot of time <laughs> with. <laughs> you know, we really haven't talked about what the programming experience is like around virtual Earth. What do you got to do to incorporate this into your application? It's a big, big secret. You need three lines of JavaScript. Oh, you're giving it all away. (laughs) (laughs) So totally web-centric then. I mean, you said JavaScript. I don't have a lot of that in my WinForms app. It's totally web-centric. Virtual Earth is 100% AJAX-driven, so it's all JavaScript and it's all HTML. Okay. Or for the mapping experience. For the data experience and pulling the data in, that's where that's where you handle the other side of the AJAX, which is is what do you do on the server? And on the server side, then you can again, it depends on what your data source is. If you've got, um, you know, if you're working in a, a .NET environment, you can write some HTTP handlers that are going to process your data and wrap it up as the uh, the JavaScript pieces or the uh, the XML data that the AJAX front end needs to call. Uh, if you're working in, in other environments, obviously there's lots of other choices for, for how you present that data. But as long as you have access to the Internet and can somehow handle hosting JavaScript, you can do whatever you want with the uh, the virtual earth pieces. So do you ever need to host, if I'm building my application to use this data, do I need to host all the data myself? No. Well, yes and no. You don't need to host any mapping data. You don't need to host any routing data. The data that you need to host yourself is if you've got extra information. So, for example, like the, the real estate companies, their capital is, is what they know about the houses that they're trying to sell. Right. So they're going to host that internally and only provide access to it through their own website. But i got to think that one of the challenges of making this work well is when I have 10,000 points that I want to display on a, on a map, i got to get all of those in combination with the map data that is stored over on the virtual Earth side. Right. You need something like a local cache to make that snappy. Yeah, Maybe. you need a local cache, and you also need to be a little bit smart about how how you pull the points back because what will happen is that the uh, the virtual Earth map has a, an event system. So if there's an event that gets triggered on a, uh, on a page refresh or map resume kind of level. So if somebody drags the map and moves it to a different spot or changes the zoom level, so the trick is, if you've got 10,000 points to show, don't show them all at once. Right. Just show the ones that are likely to be on the map. Right. Yeah, and also you can do things with, if you have a concentration in one area, you just, at a at a zoom out level, you show some sort of colors, and as you get 
further in, you start, you know, with Ajax popping in those Popping uh, in details. the actual points. Yeah. And, and there's the, the big dark secret about virtual earth is that it's, it's seductively easy to get into, but then the more you try to do with it, uh, the more creative you become on widget zoom levels and, and how I do clustering and whatnot, it can get fairly complex. And again, unfortunately, it's, it's beautiful because it's, it's totally language neutral. It's Ajax, it's common standards and JavaScript. But on the other hand, it's JavaScript, which is not typed, it's not compilable, and it kind of sucks to program in if you are, are like me and, and grew up with real languages and real compilers. You know, I thought that for years we were fighting as hard as we could to get away from age, or away from JavaScript by moving to server-side technologies, and then all of a sudden we're right back in the middle of it. So, hmm. uh, you know, it's seductively easy to get into, but you can run into some problems. It strikes me as it's challenging to debug. It can be. And again, you know, JavaScript's tools for debugging is, is another whole conversation, and really only in the last <laughs> year or two have they started coming out to any significant degree. You know, .NET Rocks would not even be possible today if it weren't for the great support of our first sponsor, Data Dynamics. And their product is the one that we really love, Active Reports for .NET. It's easy to use. It's powerful. You just create the reports. You put them right in your assemblies, and you ship them with your code. They have uh, HTML and PDF support. They've got an excellent access upsizing wizard so that you can get your access reports into Active Reports for .NET. Uh, works for Windows Forms, works with ASP.NET. It's easy, and it just works. And best of all, it won't break the bank. And that's what we love about Data Dynamics. Data Dynamics has got a lot of other great tools, too. And you should check them out. Please check them out at datadynamics.com. Well, um, what about web services? Are there web services that you can call from the server side? I mean, you're saying it's all Ajax client side, but but uh, that data is coming from somewhere. I mean, it's coming yeah, from... The, um, the virtual Earth piece is... Ajax-driven. The MapPoint web service pieces are all web services. The difference between the two is that with MapPoint web service, if you're, you're calling a web service to pull back a map, the only map style that you can get is the, uh, the, the flat roadmap. You can't really get the satellite imagery or sure. the, uh, the hybrid imagery or the 3D, bird, or 3D or bird's eye off of the MapPoint web services. Okay. The other part of it, though, is that you can definitely use the web services for things that don't have the visual component, like all the geocoding. Um, some of the other and locations... Geocoding is what? Is getting coordinates is, from something? Right. It's, it's turning turning a street address into a latitude and longitude. Okay. Right. Where right. does GeoRSS fit into this? Where does GeoRSS fit into this? Well, GeoRSS is an RSS feed that has a couple of special tags. Basically comes into a latitude and longitude. So any RSS post that you can tag with a latitude and longitude field pretty much becomes GeoRSS. Okay. Where, where it comes into virtual Earth is that with, again, about two lines of JavaScript, I can take your GeoRSS feed and display it on a virtual Earth map. I see. And that's hugely powerful. So, so basically you've got an, a little XML in the, in the RSS that says, here's the long and lat, here's what it is, here's a JPEG that you can put over it or whatever right yeah wow and then i can take that and just display it right on the map with about you know two or three lines of javascript very very easy very very powerful way huh. to to display data on the map and not have to worry about where that data comes from or, or how it's built so use whatever system you want to to record the GRSS. and now then that's smart 
just point to your virtual list map at the, the link where the GRSS is, and you're good to go. So the um, the ways that we're seeing GRSS used are, are hugely varied, and people are really just beginning to, to play heavily with it. Easiest thing has got to be photographs with, uh, you know, geo coordinates attached to them. Right. Every every camera has got its own mechanism for this. is totally unique. To be able to feed that out into something that anything else can read is a challenge. Yeah, that's, you know, that's definitely one good part. There's another little tangent associated with that. But one of the things I wanted to get back to before we got too far away from it, you were talking about the, the developer experience and how do you actually start using virtual earth. The, uh, the link that you want to point people to is dev.live.com slash virtual earth slash SDK. And we've shrinksterized that at shrinkster.com slash OL3. Now, what you would be looking at if you actually go to this site is the Virtual Earth Interactive SDK. Uh, this is probably the single best SDK I've ever seen for almost any developer platform in the world because instead of just giving you a list of API calls and functions, what you see is examples, working examples of how Virtual Earth can be used. So you click on, I want to show a, a uh, 3D map. And it shows the 3D map on the screen, and there's a second tab that shows you the source code necessary to do what you just saw. And then there's a third tab that shows you the actual API reference behind it. And then there's a fourth tab that has learned more for additional links or additional content related oh, to man. it. Oh, man. If every if every SDK can be documented like this, we'd be – oh, man. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's it's a site that I go to every single time that I do anything related to virtual earth just because it's all right there for you. These are, are clean, simple, short uh, examples that, that show you exactly what you need to do to make the methods work. Taking view source to the next level. Yeah, just click a tab. There's the source code. So, yeah, I wanted to make sure we get that in before we continue too far on, on what do we do with GORSS. Because if you actually go to uh, working with layers, I believe, uh, there should be an example of using GRSS. You shape layers. Is that what you're talking about, or import data into shape layers? Ah, there you uh, go. Import data into shape layers, add a GRSS layer. Right, there it is. Yep. Wow. So the huh. interactive SDK version of GRSS is a, a hike up through uh, up through the mountains where each point where they added the GRS point, you talk about a little, a little example. And you can just imagine Nick Landry out there, except that I think Nick Landry's idea of camping is a, a three-star hotel instead of a five-star. <laughs> you know, you can imagine that Nick Landry out there with his mobile device typing in a, a GRSS blog entry every single night. That's Nick walking into the big black square. <laughs> and then we walked into a big black square. Yeah. <laughs> So the other one that's right below there actually is, is add a maps.live.com collection. So if you've ever played with maps.live.com, that's Microsoft's pure consumer version of Virtual Earth. It's their, their live site that's built very much on the Virtual Earth platform. So everything that you see on the live site is, is being drawn from the Virtual Earth API uh, with a, a little bit of differences. There's some, sometimes one side or the other gets a little headed, ahead, but on the whole, that's what you're seeing. So on maps.live.com, if you're uh, uh, just a hobbyist and you're out there and you create a collection, save that collection, you can then tie into it from a virtual earth map not running on maps.live.com. So it basically becomes just another GORSS collection that you can connect to. 
So there's, again, a huge number of things that you can do with this from almost any direction you want to approach it, whether you're your hardcore business or uh, trying to get people to find your locations or just something to play with. I mean, and, and with the interactive SDK, as far as something to play with, this is the, the place to be. The one part that we haven't talked about on Virtual Earth yet that I, I'd really kind of like to get into a little bit is the 3D. Okay. Yeah. Now, Virtual Earth 3D right now is a, an ActiveX control, so it's only going to run an Internet Explorer. Uh, that's the bad news. The good news is that I think it's it's light years ahead of everybody else's 3D versions. The the control itself is um, a .NET managed control that takes the special rendered versions of all of the maps to show it as a globe. So you can switch to 3D mode and you can see your location as if it were the globe. The controls are either keyboard controls or, or my favorite way to do it is to take the uh, Xbox 360 controller with the, the USB converter, plug that into my my laptop, and then you're flying through the world using your, your Xbox 360 control <laughs> on the 3D mode. Brilliant. That, that awesome. blows people away, and it's, it's so natural and instinctive to use the controller as opposed to the keyboard. But if you switch over to 3D mode, it's, it's fun just to play around with it all on its own, especially if you look at some of the areas where uh, they've just done new imagery, like uh, Mount Vesuvius in Italy. Uh, a couple months ago, Microsoft's got all their data for Italy pushed in, and flying around the volcano crater is, is pretty impressive. But what's even more impressive is if you start getting into the cities with the uh, 3D building models. So depending on where you are, Microsoft has actually pushed out a few commercials that, that kind of really illustrate and, and show it. But the uh, the 3D building models... My favorite right now, I think, is Boston because it's a city I've been to a lot, and it also has some of the best uh, 3D buildings in it. You can basically fly into Logan Airport and start walking around downtown Boston and see every single building with the correct texture uh, on top of it. Huh. And and where this is going is, is again, another one of those absolute revolutions that, that for now people look at 3D and say, this is great, but what's the business case? And Microsoft is saying, We'll figure it out, but this is something that we need to do. And we're starting to see and hear more and more business cases come up and, and more and more things that people would like to be able to do with 3D, which is really influencing the direction that Microsoft is going with it. So we're talking about emergency planning. Imagine a, a fire chief who can, from his command center, uh, get a fire alarm in a particular building and show that location, show all the buildings around it, figure out where his trucks are going to have to go because he has to get the ladder trucks in in a position where they can raise the ladders and, and actually get up to the floors, uh, stop the rendering of that particular building at the floor where the fire is, uh, and maybe pull in a floor plan. Right. And have the floor plan accurately rendered in, in 3D showing that particular floor. So now you're talking about Hollywood movies. You're talking about... Uh, you know, all of the, the Philip K. Dick short stories that have been turned into movies recently of, of Minority Report and Paycheck and, and things like that, where you've got the 3D visualizations that stop exactly where you tell it to stop and have all that information fully integrated. Yeah, you get that big brain in the sky effect of, I can see what's in that building from where you are. Right. And and then you start tying in maybe some live feed data to be able to sync the two things together. But that Yeah, that gets pretty pretty amazing in terms of your ability to support people on the ground who can only see immediately around them. Right. And this is this is the reality version as opposed to the Hollywood version and it's <laughs> it's coming. It's it's definitely it starts with things like the virtual or 3D control. You know, I've got to think there's all these new technologies coming along that haven't been integrated into this yet. I'm thinking WPF and Silverlight. 
right. both have got to have an impact on what's going to happen in the virtual Earth world. I think they will. I think it's, again, still new enough that, and I'm, I'm under enough NDAs that I'm getting in trouble if I say anything more than I think they will. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I think the correct answer is, it's inevitable, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And the answer is, mm, I don't know. <laughs> but it does it, seem it, it, to make it, sense. It's going to have a huge impact, and, and we'll definitely see 3D. 3D is, you know, it's not, a, I guess it's still officially a beta product. I forget exactly the, the designation on it, but it's still a, uh, a very young product, and it's just beginning to show some of the things that you can do with it. And I think over the next couple of years, the, the 3D control you know, the virtual earth control is, is getting to the point where it's really stable and you're starting to see it used in these business applications and applied in new ways. The 3D control is still new enough that people are just beginning to think of, well, if they can give me that, if I can add this one extra little hook here, I can suddenly do things that I never would have dreamed possible. Right. So I think the 3D control is, is really going to be changing a lot in the next couple of years. As, as people start coming up with, well, what is the business case? Well, what would I like to do with it? Yeah, these are different problems to solve than the ones that are being solved by the 2D maps. Right. So uh, you're seeing a lot of, you know, a lot of 3D right now is just, it's a cool toy. What, what can we do with it? What can we show off? So we've had some interest, for example, from uh, some of the travel companies who maybe don't want to have the 3D control hooked from their site, but they want to use it to film a flyover. So if I've got a, a fully 3D rendered version of my particular hotel and say I'm in Florida, so I want to fly through Disneyland and Disney World and, and put together a package tour where you can come stay in my hotel and, and spend four days at Disneyland and, and do a fly-through, a 3D fly-through of that so that you can see exactly what's going on. Or take the, the 3D control and say, your room reservation is uh, 1227, which is on the south side of the building. It will look like this and basically puts you in the position of looking out the window of the hotel room that you just booked. Wow. From a, a 3D perspective. Right. I, I would find it incredibly valuable to be able to have a 3D perspective of what my hotel looks like. So when I'm walking down the street, instead of trying to find the address, I've already got a sense of the, the landmarks. Well, and in virtual earth right now, you've kind of got two separate versions of that. One would be the true 3D, which, again, is, is limited to, to areas but growing rapidly. The other is the, the bird's-eye imagery, which is a little bit wider spread. In fact, it's a lot wider spread than 3D, but it gives you the same sort of effect. The, the bird's-eye imagery is a um, kind of a 60-degree angle aerial picture uh, of the area in question. So uh, some of the, the really great bird's-eye imagery, um, one of my favorites is actually the, uh, see if I can find it again, was the, the Air Force uh, Bone Graveyard in Arizona. Right. So all the airplanes that have, have been mothballed. Wow. You can get bird's eye imagery on that and see everything in, in kind of a, a, not an orthographic or a straight down view, but actually looking at it from a little bit of an angle, which gives you a lot more texture and, and sh shading and imagery behind it. You know, what's fun to look at uh, with, you know, in a, in a 3D view is uh, Niagara Falls. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you sort of get the topography that goes straight down. Yeah, something with some big depth in it. The Hoover right. Dam is also a good one. So people people have a little trouble looking straight down. Uh, I find that using a, a virtual Earth, you know, the aerial or satellite imagery of New York is kind of confusing because you never see those buildings from the top. Right. Right. It doesn't look right. 
it doesn't it doesn't look right and it doesn't necessarily help you. So if I'm looking at downtown New York with as, as crowded as it is with with the high rises, I tend to just flip over to the map view and look at streets. But if I have that that side projection, and I can get a little bit better feel for well, what does the the front of the building look like, or what does the side of the building look like? Hey Richard, all this talk about um, about mapping has made me nostalgic. Because I bet you didn't know this, but in my book, Visual Basic 6.0 Internet Programming, I did a, a demo, some code there using the Tiger Mapping Service, which is which is a branch of the U.S. Census Bureau, and they made this URL-based mapping service. So you basically get a long URL with long and lat and zoom in factor and layers like city labels and grids and census data and countries and and you can layer on your own points, and it's all in a single URL, and it returns back a JPEG or a GIF file. Well, I did not know that. Yeah. But I'm very interested in the fact that, you know, those early days, this stuff was really expensive. Yeah. Getting that data cost you a pile of money, and now it's free. Well, no, it was free then. Okay. This was free. At the time, which was uh, 1995, 96? Well, and that's that's the other big question about things like virtual earth is, is the cost. And it's a, a conversation that gets, again, to, to various depths of complexity depending on, on who you are and what you're trying to do with the map. Virtual earth, as an example, is completely free for consumer use or developer use. So anyone can go out there and, and use these maps without issue. For commercial customers, uh, there are varying degrees of, of charges associated with it. And one of the big things that makes Virtual Earth, in my mind, a lot stronger choice than something like Google Earth is that Microsoft actually has a service level agreement. So if your business depends on getting this mapping information out, you have a service level agreement that, that means that you're, you know, Microsoft is contractually ob- obligated to making sure that Virtual Earth stays up and running and that there's you know, clawbacks and, and legal considerations each direction if something goes wrong. Yeah, because Google goes down all the time. Well, you know, <laughs> Google doesn't go down all the time, but their maps don't necessarily stay up all the time. The other thing is that Google Google will change their mapping API on the spur of the moment and not tell anyone. Uh, Google will also push ads out on their maps without telling anyone. Okay, point Whereas taken. With the, with the service level agreement, with the contract with Microsoft, you've got a lot better control and guarantees over that. Yeah, there is an advantage to actually paying for a service that you get certain things, uh, maybe not on the consumer level, but certainly at, a, at an enterprise level, at a business level, to uh, to be able to have some control over that and uh, via uh, a cost associated with it, it makes sense. Right, and that you know has a contractual guarantees. Right, is, is a huge huge advantage. So again, as far as the pricing, if you wanted to use this for you know. Building a site for yourself or your family, no big deal at all. Nobody's going to care. Uh, if you're trying to build this to, to show every single McDonald's location, yeah, Microsoft's going to want to talk to you about about the cost. But Virtual Earth and MapPoint Web Service right now are primarily done on a transaction model. So, you know, you pay for what you use. Right. Good enough. What is the uh, the absolute coolest thing you've ever seen done with... with uh... Virtual Earth. Oh wow! Um, honestly, I would have to say it's the the disaster management application that we put together. Okay, what's that all about? That's that's the one that I mentioned a little bit before the the Jeepers platform. Oh where, oh sure. You know we, we've got the SharePoint site, you've got the analytics behind it, you've got the communications 
Uh, you've got you know BizTalk hooks if you want them, and, and the ability to to have the map be a complete command and control interface. Yeah, that that does sound awesome. And, you know, it, when, and I see all these potential for extensions on that as well. You've already described yeah. a lot of them with the 3D, the ability to pull in from other sources of data to get a floor plan, things like that. It just seems to be nowhere near the full potential of that application. No, and it's in terms of just of actual working products, I think that's about the coolest I've seen. Uh, the other one that's that's just recently come out is actually um, uh, uh, Weather.com's pieces and the Weather Channels. Hmm. Where they've got their uh, their three dimensional cloud layers overlaid on top of the virtual Earth maps. Wow, nice! And and instead of having kind of clunky graphics, you're actually seeing real textured terrain underneath the the clouds and and seeing a little bit more about how the geography really makes a big difference. Wow, that is cool. Yeah, there's a reason that tornadoes are where they are. It's flat there. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. So we're just about out of time. Is there? Any last-minute things you want to mention or plug or talk about a new toy or something? I am the least geeky person that I know who makes their business being a geek. I have a <laughs> cell phone that I bought in, in uh, 2000, and it still works, and it's still the one I carry around. Cell phones. Ah, old old news. Yeah, yeah. you know, we Nick Landry virtual makes Earth. me every time I run into him because he's got four <laughs> new gadgets, and I'm still trucking around the old stuff that I've had forever. So I... I don't have a new toy that I particularly want to plug. But. And he probably makes you feel like a girly man for it, too, doesn't he? He likes to do that. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm carrying around a brick, so it's, it's big, it's heavy, it's uh, a good weapon. Dude, uh, you want to watch television on my phone? Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's Nick. You should get one of these. <laughs> I think the the biggest things that I would push with virtual earth is is for people just to you know to take a look at it and don't limit yourself to oh it's just a map. Yeah. It can be so much more than that. Use your you know, imagination. Use the map as a metaphor for for analyzing your your data, for linking together that data that doesn't seem like it relates to each other at all, uh, for different kinds of services. It, it's hugely powerful and hugely extensible, and and I, I think we're really just beginning to scratch the surface of all the things you can do with it besides find the nearest McDonald's. Yeah, and the word data is so plain and ordinary, but, you know, it can be really, really tasty now. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, listen, Rob, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, and say hi to Nick and Greg and all those wacky people down there. Hope you're, oh, yeah. having, hope you're having a good time. Definitely. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the 